Welcome to Broadway World, something like a pop podcast. I am Matt Timonini, Broadway World Senior TV and Film Critic. And as always, I am joined by the brains of our operation, Broadway World TV's Los Angeles Bureau Chief and resident documentarian Jennifer McHugh. You can follow Jen on Twitter at EponineQ, that's E-P-O-N-I-N-E-Q. And you can follow me at BWWMatt, that's B-W-W-M-A-T-T. You can read both of us across various Broadway World sites. And you can now follow Something Like It Pop on Twitter at S-L-I-P Podcast. Not only can you find all episodes of Something Like It Pop on BroadwayWorld.com, but you can also get new episodes downloaded automatically via iTunes, Stitcher, and Google Play. And if you don't hate us, rate and review the show so that we have something to cheer us up after the deluge of April television gets us exhausted and tired and kind of depressed based on what you're watching. On this episode, we're going to talk about all of the ridiculously amazing television that either has or will debut or return in the month of April. We will also check in on the new podcasting sensation, other than Some Like It Pop, obviously, that is sweeping the nation, that is S-Town. We will do a very specific round of two-minute recommendations, and per the use, we will close the episode with a little show and tell. But first, Jen, between the two of us, you are the one that loves documentaries, and now, via this very feed... You are the host of a podcast documentary that we are calling Making a Musical. If people have seen it in the feed and thought that maybe it was some sort of a mistake and just skipped over it, why don't you tell them a little bit about what it's all about now that the first two episodes are available in the Some Like It Pop feed? Well, it's about this new musical called Invisible. And one of our listeners, David Orris, um, he's the composer of it. And along with his partner, David Hollingsworth, they created this musical and they reached out to me knowing I was a Los Angeles local and see if I wanted to come see one of their staged readings. And I did. Thought it was really cool, had a lot of potential. And we decided to kind of uh, walk everybody through the process of just what it takes to get a concept of a musical out of your heads and produce it and get it onto a stage, which, as you can imagine, takes years. So we are starting at the beginning, talking to the Davids, as I call them, talking about their process. Eventually, we'll get into talking to some of the actors that performed, as well as some of the behind-the-scenes people, the producers, the directors, etc., and just see where they are in the process and how it got this far. Yeah, in the first two episodes, you interviewed both of the Davids, and they've talked a little bit. We did these interviews a few months ago, and it's fun because as I'm going back and listening to these, some of the things that they're talking about are going to be happening, are getting to the point now I'm thinking in real life are going to be close to happening. So I'm excited to see as we finish this, maybe if you can do like an update and see where they are and what's happened since these recordings, because their story is really, really fascinating about how all that happened. So if you haven't listened to our making a musical, what are we calling it? A a limited series, do that. It's really cool. Those two guys are fantastic. And in the next episode, which will drop on, what is that? That is the 22nd. The next episode will drop on April 22nd. Jen, you're going to be interviewing some of the principals from a recent reading that you went and saw, I guess, at the end of 2016? Yes, it was was during hockey. I know that. I remember I was getting to the reading and trying to listen to the end of a hockey game, but Ah. that's irrelevant. Anyway, um, the principals from... The principal actors from that reading, we got a chance to interview them, and they're just as delightful as the Davids are. Awesome. Well, definitely check out Making a Musical and stay tuned for the third of six episodes coming out later this month in this very podcast feed. Okay, Jen, I teased it at the beginning, and April, for many reasons, has become kind of the equivalent of what July is for movies. When it comes to television programming, mainly because the Emmy Award calendar 
stipulates that you have to get a certain number of episodes aired by the end of May for your show to be considered for that year's Emmy Awards. That means you kind of have to start in April. So we see now, over the last five-ish years, a crap ton of prestige television coming out in the month of April. It also helps that May is a rating sweeps month, so you have kind of the combination of awards and advertising dollars, uh, depending on how well a network does. So we are seeing a ton of stuff happening both on cable, pay cable, and network television. And Jen, we're going to talk about uh, a handful of shows here, some that you and I both watch, some that maybe we don't both watch, but we want to try to give people a good cross-section of all the great television that's happening, either has started out in this month or will by the time April turns into May. Now, since we are going to be talking about a bunch of different shows, we're going to try to keep it as vague as possible and try to avoid spoilers, since a lot of these shows haven't even started airing yet this season. So, we're not going to get too deep, and hopefully you guys will be able to check out those shows on your own. We will also try to be as spoiler-free as possible on our next big topic, which is that podcast I mentioned at the top of the show, mainly because I haven't gotten as far as Jen has. But, the first show that we want to talk about is one that we have talked about for a basically since day one of Some Like It Pop when we started before we even had our, an actual podcast feed, and that is HBO's The Leftovers. It is from Damon Lindelof and Tom Parada. It is It really defies classification because it is part fantasy, it's part religious allegory, it is part crippling drama. It is everything that I think you and I love in television because it is a very intelligent, well-acted story. But unfortunately, even though it's on HBO and ratings don't mean a ton, this will be its final season. So as we move into this final season, we kind of start to think that we might get some sort of closure. I don't know that we're going to get all the answers that we want. This is Damon Lindelof, obviously. The third season will start on April 16th. Jen, you and I have both watched, I've watched the first episode of season three. How much have you seen? Just the first. Okay, so we are both on the same page here. We've both watched the first episode of season three. And Jen, I got to tell you, this is as close to poetry that I think television can get. This first episode of season three is beautiful in terms of the way it's written and the way it's acted, it's cinematography, it's editing. If I didn't have to get through a bunch of other TV that we can talk about other stuff, I probably would have been watched, binge watched all seven of the episodes that are available to critics now. I was completely enthralled by what has changed in the few years since the end of season two. Um, what what did you kind of take away from this first episode of season three of The Leftovers? It obviously has the same tone as it's always had. It's always been beautifully poetic. And I honestly think the main reason for that for me is the score. Um, Mm. I think the music that underlies it sets the tone immediately. And they always carry through every episode with the same theme, even if they vary it. Um, There's always a certain sound when Justin Thoreau is on screen. There's a sound when Matt's on screen. Like, it's just such a great through line that for me, it just takes me, it transports me to the um, atmosphere immediately. Yeah, I, I don't know that a lot of shows use music the way that The Leftovers does. Another one that does is the next show we're going to talk about, and that's Fargo. They both use music very much into their storytelling. And that started from the very beginning of, of both series. And it's it definitely gets you ready. For those people that 
don't remember The Leftovers, the series started in Mapleton, New York, after what is called the sudden departure, when about 140 million people, or 2% of the world's population, just up and disappeared out of nowhere. And this isn't like they ran off to a secret island somewhere. They were literally driving cars and just disappeared off the face of the earth. The first season kind of deals with the grief of trying to get over it and how people dealt with losing people. The second season saw a number of the principals move to Jardin, Texas, where apparently nobody was taken by the departure, and they were trying to figure out some sort of reason why they were there and thought it might have some sort of mystic powers. Season three begins in Jardin, Texas, again a few years into the future. But Jen, as this first episode ends, and I don't know how much we want to get into spoilers, we see that Jardin, Texas is probably not going to be the end destination of this series. Did you know that that was coming, or were you as shocked as I was? I knew that there was probably a change of locale, but when that last reveal happens in the last scene, I was a little shaken. At the end? Yes. I'm trying to think. Can you cut out uh, the spoiler and tell me what you mean? Oh, right, right, right. Okay, yeah, yeah. Um, Yes, and because they weren't showing who it was for the longest time. I right. knew it was setting up for something, but I wasn't expecting that. No, me neither. <laughs> That's exactly what I thought. I was like, oh, they haven't shown this person's face, so clearly it's going to be somebody. And yet they still threw me a gut punch. Yeah, I think The Leftovers in general is is a great example of a show where the entire time I'm like, I have no idea what's happening. And I don't care because <laughs> it's just so beautiful. Did something happen to Regina Hall last season that I don't remember? Yeah, she didn't die. She's not in the first episode. But I do believe she returns in season three. She's just not in episode one of season three. But we do we do learn that something did happen to Regina Hall, Erica Murphy, and Kevin Carroll's daughter, Evie. We do know what happened to her <laughs> because it ends in season two. She has become a part of the guilty remnant. We do find out pretty early on what happens to them. And that was another shock to me as well, Jen. They... they never cease to blow my mind when it comes to what they do story-wise in The Leftovers. Oh yeah, it's no holds barred. And they did a really good job of, what I like is they start kind of in the middle of the story and it's up to you as the audience member to catch up. And it'll unfold, I know it will, because it's just Damon Lindelof, but they just start in the, it's like starting in the middle of a conversation and you just don't want to admit that you don't know what you're talking about, so you just try and figure it out. Yeah, there's no previously on the leftovers uh, uh, things that happen at the beginning of each episode. Usually when they're like previously on the leftovers, it kind of spoils what's going to happen. In the first episode of season three, we see a character come back that we haven't seen in a long time. If they would have shown that character in the previously on stuff to remind us, it probably would have spoiled the fun of it. But they did throw it in when this character returns. So I, I like the fact that they expect leftover viewers to have a little bit of not only memory to remember stuff that happens, but critical thinking to be able to piece things together. But Jen, the thing that I'm struck with with season three, more than anything else, is that it's there's religion has always been a major factor in this series. But for the most part, it's been either kind of a, a, a minor plot device or an underlying, um, an undertow of, of an allegory. But in season three, as we begin to see, one of the one of the major things that we learn in this first episode is that it comes to the forefront in many more direct ways into the storytelling. It's not just Matt as a preacher and there's some you know some people who are kind of a religious cult. It is 
actually trying to delve into some of these things. I'm trying to say this without spoiling anything, but it's actually saying, look, maybe there's more to this story about religion than it just being tangentially related. Does that make sense? I'm trying not to spoil too much, but it kind of showed a little bit of their end game, I think, as they move into season three. No, I have no idea what's going on. Um, uh, okay, fair enough. But <laughs> it's just so mesmerizing that I think I get lost in it sometimes. <laughs> no pun intended. But <laughs> nice. it's just kind of watching it transfixed at the at the fluidity and like you said, the the cinematography and the music and everything. And then the episode ends and I'm like, all right, now what happened? And so <laughs> it's almost like the story is um, secondary to the production value. I don't know if that makes any sense. No, I mean, it, it's all part of this bigger puzzle. And, and I think if you focus on certain things, it's very easy to get swept up in one certain facet of this beautiful, beautiful picture. Um I don't know what my favorite part is, but I know that I'm going to miss it when this show departs. Sorry, I had to. <laughs> All right, so we so we highly recommend season three of The Leftovers. Um, the, it's not a huge commitment to go back and watch the first two seasons. There's only been 20 episodes. In fact, I've recently got my brother to start binge-watching the first two seasons. He's about halfway through season two. He has absolutely no idea what's going on either. Um, but he, like us, Jen, enjoys it despite not really following exactly what's going on. Um, I feel like as we get to season three, things are starting to fall into place a little bit more. Um, it seems that they are starting to settle down into a more familiar pattern that doesn't take away from the storytelling, but I think it, fo- it seems like they're focused a little bit more knowing that the end date is coming. So... We'll see if that helps or not. It seems like they're trimming away some characters for better or for worse and focusing on just that main core, but they're, they're kind of tying up some loose ends before they move on to the main section of season three. All right, so The Leftovers is, is one of the shows we've been talking about since day one that we love. Another one of those, also in its third season, is FX's Fargo. Unlike The Leftovers, it is not a story told through from one season to the other. The construct of Fargo is that each season there is a new story set around the general vibe and theme of the original Coen Brothers film Fargo without really having too much of a connection. There's some little threads between season one and season two. We'll see if that ties back into season three at all. However, season three does have a pretty major tie into The Leftovers as because Carrie Coon, who is I think she's probably my favorite actor on The Leftovers. She is also a part of this incredible cast for season three. Jen, um, we have, I think, two episodes available to us of this. Have you watched both or just the uh, the first one? I have watched both. Okay, I have just watched the first episode, um, so I haven't gotten to the second episode. But the third season of Fargo features Ewan McGregor playing twins. As I said, it features Carrie Coon. It also features Mary Elizabeth Winstead, Jim Gaffigan, and a number of other people. Jen, the third season debuts on the 19th of April on FX. And here's where I'm, I'm a little worried about how we're going to feel about this is because I was really disappointed with the first episode of season three. I didn't feel the Fargo world that I really loved in the first two seasons. Now, I'm still going to watch every episode, and I'm hoping that we get back to that world, but I didn't feel the weird, quirky, 
don't you know, uh, north, you know, central part of the country kind of thing. And it just kind of felt like a normal, you know, whodunit kind of thing. I didn't get the Fargo vibe. Is, was that just me or did you get any of that uh, as well when you watched the first episode or two? No, uh, it's just you. It was great. Um, The second episode uh, I loved. I think Ewan McGregor is a revelation um, as these twins because they are freaking hilarious. And they're, I would say, nemesis, these these Russians or these mysterious people that are coming in. I don't want to give anything away to you who hasn't seen anything, are really introducing an interesting level as far as villains, I I guess you would say, but I very much enjoyed it. I love the gore. I love the um, atmosphere and the casual murder <laughs> that just happens every once in a while. I really am excited to see how these two brothers that you and McGregor play, how they unfold because they're both so very interesting and so very different and so very not you and McGregor. Uh, yeah, I, I'll be honest with you. I had to look up who Ray was I because at first when you see – Ray, who is one of the two characters that Ian McGregor plays, you don't know that he's one of the twins. I knew going in that Ian McGregor played twins, but they don't exactly look alike. So when I saw Ray at this big party before they really introduced who he was, I was like, who the hell is that? Like, he looks familiar, but I can't tell who that is. And then when he says he's Emmett's brother, the other character played by clearly Ewan McGregor, you're like, holy crap. I did not see that. It was kind of the same feeling I got when I realized who played the detective in uh, the Kevin Smith film Tusk. I was like, oh, that's who that, that's why that person looks familiar. And I don't want to spoil that because, you know, Jen, you and I love Tusk and, uh, and Yoga Hosers. So we don't want to ruin that surprise if people haven't seen it. But uh, yeah, it was just, you know, I, I liked the first episode, I guess. I didn't, I didn't love it. You're, you're talking about the casual murder. That was a very funny uh, part. I, I I guess I'm kind of a Mary Elizabeth Winstead fan from Mercy Street and Brain Dead on TV and uh, Scott Pilgrim versus the World, but you know nothing really popped for me. And, and even Carrie Coon's character was, you know, and I've, again I've only seen the first episode, so I, I trust you that it kind of unfolds a little more, and that maybe I was just kind of on a little brain dead spot because I'd watched so much TV leading up to this, but. I love this show, so I'm I'm looking forward to it. Jen, if you could put your finger on what it is about this Fargo universe that Noah Hawley has created that has made it such interesting, unique television, do you have any idea, like, are you able to, to verbalize what it is that makes this so different from everything else on TV? Because weird characters aren't original to Fargo, you know, crazy storylines aren't unique to Fargo, but there's something when this is just done well, that it just transcends everything else that's even in the same vicinity on either network or cable television. I don't know if I can put my finger on it. Um, I do notice how real the people are and how almost emotionless their reactions are to everything. Um, It's just kind of like every day life to, and you just get sucked into their realness And that, you know, horrific deaths, as crazy as they may be, boy, it's really hard to not do spoilers. I appreciate it. It's just one of those Thursday nights, you know, you you have a problem, you have to take care of it. Um, Let me take care of it this way. Okay, that's done. Moving on. So I I don't know. I can't put my finger on it. I think 
he took the cue from the Coen brothers on uh, as to how to create these kind of characters and just ran with it. And it was a big risk. It could have been a big fail, but for some reason, you know, he he's fine with it. Yeah, no, he's done a great job so far, and that's obviously told by how much money FX has invested in Noah Hawley specifically, and Fargo in general, and all the awards and the acclaim that his series has gotten. So I'm looking forward to seeing how it unfolds, and I I trust Noah Hawley implicitly. I think he's one of the best TV creators working today, so I'm sure it'll be fine, and I'm sure whatever I felt was holding me back was just a momentary blip. But anyway, one show, Jen, that you and I both watch that I I know for a fact and neither of us had any reservations about when its third season debuted earlier this month. And that is the always bizarre CW zombie show, iZombie. It premiered its third season on April 4th. And I almost feel like, Jen, this show has kind of reached a new level with this third season because they've gotten through the requisite keeping secrets from major characters storyline. Now every major person knows that Liv Moore and a few other major characters are zombies. And now it's almost just like, okay, now we can get to a bigger story. And it doesn't have to be so insular where we segregate different cast members into the who knows what clubs. So now that they've kind of, they've they've gotten Clive Babineau, the detective that um, Liv Moore often works with to solve crimes. He's in on the, the, the secret. It almost feels like, okay, now we can move from solving a crime a week and maybe doing some little weird things with some entrepreneurial criminal zombies into a big story like they are with season three and the, of course, aptly named Fillmore Graves Enterprises. Well, I think we had spoken about this offline, too, where it was kind of the, the same thing in Buffy, where it was just, you know, if, if, if just a select number of people know, then all these like cool things can happen. But you're still keeping the secret from the world and watching it as the world finds out or as the, you're trying to keep it from them. But it's 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 so much more fun to watch it when every like the friends are all in on it and they have each other's back. And I think we had spoken about this, but in the season two finale, creator Rob Thomas, who's a genius, <laughs> brought on guest star Rob Thomas from the band Matchbox 20. Yeah, they're not the same person. Same name. They are not the same person. And he killed him. And in this episode, just little subtle things in the background, hearing um, celebrity tributes to <laughs> singer Rob Thomas. It was just like the stupidest little touch that was so funny hearing uh carlos santana <laughs> tweets hope heaven is a little bit smoother now r.i.p rob thomas like just those little touches that are just giggles for the audience make me so happy with this show well, and that's really what tv creator rob thomas has always done whether it was going back to you know one of my favorite shows veronica mars and he's been doing it in this for a long time the show party down which i haven't seen a, a ton of but he was also uh, a co-creator of it was very silly like that as well but i love this season i love these people i, I don't know if a season th- four um, is going to happen um it's one of those things where at the, when they finished filming season three on social media they were all like I don't know if we're going to get to do this anymore, but I, I hope so, and I love it. I think the show is so smart, and it's so different from a lot of the other stuff that happens on the CW, 
while I, you know, we, you and I both adore the CW, but it is a very different kind of vibe than some of those other shows. It blends some of the fun, quirky stuff like Jane the Virgin and Crazy Ex-Girlfriend and No Tomorrow with some of the more, you know, supernatural stuff like Supernatural or Vampire Diaries and even a little bit of the superhero stuff since iZombie is based on a comic book, but it, you know, it, it didn't get super great ratings um, for its season three premiere, but I'm, I'm hoping that this 13 episodes isn't the last that we get. I hope so too. And, and like we had talked about, and I keep saying that because we literally talk yes. about this all the time off the air, but it knows exactly what it is and it doesn't take itself too seriously. And it is the first to make fun of itself. And I just really appreciate the sense of humor it has about itself. And I, I have a feeling that whenever this show does end, and I hope it's much further down the line than after these 13 episodes, but I have a feeling that some of these people are going to go on to be seen on a lot of other television projects, whether that's Rose McIver, um, Raul Kahuli, who plays her boss, I think is, is going to be fantastic. He's guest starring on some other shows already. Obviously, Ali Machalka kind of have a, has another career. She's probably the I would say she's probably the one, the main cast member that has the biggest career coming into this, don't you think? Maybe other than Steven Weber, who uh, has been a recurring character for the first two seasons. But David Anders, Robert Buckley, Malcolm Goodwin, I, I have a feeling that a lot of these people, whenever iZombie wraps up, have, have made themselves very valuable television personalities. Well, we can only hope, so do the right thing, the CW. And they do a pretty good job of renewing shows, but I'm a little nervous for this and... No Tomorrow, which I think is pretty much dead in the water, but oh well. All right, so Jen, from here, these are the shows that we knew that both of us were definitely going to be watching, but there are some other shows that are debuting in April that we weren't 100% sure if the other one was watching, so we figured we're going to give each of us a couple minutes to talk about a recommendation, and then we'll flip, and then we'll do another one, and then we'll do another one, and then we'll wrap up with two-minute recommendations later in the show where we just get everything else out that we are either looking forward to or something else that we've seen. But we're going to give a little more focused time here to a couple things that we are really enjoyed, either that have already debuted or stuff that we've seen screeners for. So why don't you go ahead and lead us off with your first additional April premiere recommendation. Well, I watched on Netflix a shocking young adult series called 13 Reasons Why. <laughs> ah. Because I had read the book because I love YA. Um, but this is actually a really serious topic. And this, they, they did such a great job with the series that I never say this. I've said it one other time. I think it's better <laughs> than the book. Um, wow. I think they solved some of the book's plot holes and like – and really developed these characters into three-dimensional people. And they would deal with some serious high school bullshit like that everyone's gone through. And these are the extremes, but this does happen. And it's, it's about a girl who commits suicide and she leaves behind a series of tapes and she has 13 reasons why she killed herself. And she leaves a message to every person who was led up to the responsibility for her death. And every single person has to listen to these tapes and take responsibility for it. And it's tough. It's a tough watch, but I think it's necessary. And they did such a good job. And I highly recommend it. Yeah, I, have, I haven't watched this. I don't know that I, that I will uh, just because this is the type of thing that I tend to avoid. But if you think you might like it and you need another reason to push you over the edge the i guess um i don't know maybe by the time this comes out or not broadway's new king george the third brian darcy james is 
is he the father of the girl who commits suicide? He is, and Kate Walsh plays her mother. Oh, so, you know, just another sensible TV star and Fargo alum uh, joining in the mix. Those are the biggest two names in it. There's also uh, Derek Luke, who, you know, floats around every once in a while in movies. He plays the um, guidance counselor. And I th- and all the kids I've are new. Um, yeah. The main kid had a stint on, on Scandal for a while, but he's he's far from a big, big name. But they're all great, and it's just really well done. Awesome. Another one that I'm going to recommend technically came out in March, um, but I'm going to break our rules because, A, who's going to stop me? And, B, it's one that is technically not even officially like a series yet. But, Jen, you probably know this, that when Amazon films pilots, what they do is, is they release all the pilots and say – Hey, audience members, tell us what shows you liked, and that will help inform our decision as to what moves forward in the production process. One show that I have watched the pilot of for this part of Amazon's pilot season is The Marvelous Mrs. Maisel, and it is from writer-director Amy Sherman Palladino, late of, well, not late because it's back, I guess, but Gilmore Girls and Bunheads, and it stars the fantastic Rachel Brosnahan, who, if you watch House of Cards, has been around for a long time on House of Cards. She was also on the TV show Manhattan. She recently starred off-Broadway as Desdemona in Othello, opposite Daniel Craig and David Oyelowo. Uh, That is apparently rumored to be coming to Broadway as well. But basically, Rachel Brosnahan plays a Jewish housewife in late 1950s who is really supporting her husband who's got a normal 9-to-5 job, but he dreams of being a stand-up comic. And then... When he bombs, I guess I'm really spoiling this whole thing, but it's really just the setup of the show. He kind of bombs and he decides he's going to leave his wife and his wife kind of goes and realizes that she actually might be a stand-up comedian. She's comes from wealthy parents. She's got two kids, lives on the Upper East Side of New York City in the 1950s. But hell, she's going to be a stand-up comedian. It is the first episode, an hour-long series, is so charming, uh, as Amy Sherman Palladino shows often are charming. But it doesn't... Jen, did you watch Bunheads? No, I did not. Okay. Well, in Bunheads, you could instantly watch Sutton Foster's character and say, oh yeah, that's pretty much Lorelai Gilmore. You don't see the same threads from the Gilmore girls in this, although the witty dialogue is still there. It's just not the rapid-fire dialogue that we saw in Gilmore Girls and Bunheads. But Rachel Brosnahan is great. It also stars Tony Shalhoub and Maren Hinkle as her parents. Alex Borstein from Mad TV. Um, it took me a minute to realize who it was, uh, but she's also one of the people in it. Bailey DeYoung, who was on Bunheads, is in it as well. And even get a little bit of a uh, uh, Gilbert Godfrey cameo. Luke Kirby from our late and beloved Rectify. He plays Lenny Bruce in the pilot. So it's just a fantastic show. It's fun. It's one of those shows, Jen, that kind of we've been talking about a lot since some date, like, I don't know, November 8th of 2016, where we're looking for shows that are not as heavy and is not as weighty and don't make me hate the world. This is one of those shows that, while the main character, Miriam Midge Maisel, goes through some crap, it's a very fun, optimistic kind of show. So, I loved The Marvelous Mrs. Maisel, and I have a feeling that due to all the critical response that it's gotten, that this will be one that gets picked up to series by Amazon. So highly recommend The Marvelous Mrs. Maisel on Amazon now. 
All right, Jen, what do you have for recommendation number dose? Well, I am going to revisit something that I sing the praises of in the fall, but it just came back, so I'm going to do it again. Mm-hmm. And obviously I'm uh, in Netflix mode. It's The Get Down Part 2. It is the Boz Lerman look at the rise of hip-hop in the Bronx in the 1970s. The main character is a rapper, and his modern-day version is the narrator. So we're looking back at the rise of hip-hop in the 70s with Grandmaster Flash and how it became its own art form. There were six episodes in the fall, and now there's five more episodes here in the spring. It's written by Stephen Adley Gerges, which I believe is a Broadway guy. Mm-hmm. And oh, yeah. every time I tweet to him, he writes me back. So props to that. Anyway, um, it's just really well done. You know that this is totally my genre of music. I'm all about the hip-hop. And I love this time period. I love... <laughs> thinking back at just what a piece of shit New York was in the 70s and they do a really good job and it's I think the second part's even way better than the first part so oh good I know you will never ever watch it but it's great so I highly recommend it it's not one that I have I I haven't watched it but it's not one that I avoided because I didn't think I'd like it it's just one of those that fell through the cracks but I didn't realize it was maybe I didn't I forgot that it was Stephen Adley Gerges but he's a Pulitzer Prize winner for Between Riverside and Crazy his show The Last Days of Judas Iscariot just played off Broadway Um, I think maybe Estelle Parsons directed it and he is actually going to play Senna the Poet in Julius Caesar at the Delacorte Theater Shakespeare in the Park this summer so very cool maybe I might need to check back in with that one since there are so many theatrical connections well I I did mention the uh, narrator and it is yes played by David Diggs but voiced by Nas and we had a surprise in season two spoiler alert another Hamilton alum Renee Elise Goldsberry popped up as a Mm -hmm. 70s superstar which works for me anything she's in I'm gonna watch so my second recommendation is one that also has a handful of theatrical connections but not a ton Um, And this is the new Stars series, American Gods. It is based on the Neil Gaiman novel of the same name, and it is developed by Brian Fuller and Michael Green. Jen, Brian Fuller is one of the people like Noah Hawley, who uh, just does TV differently than everybody else, going back to things like um, Pushing Daisies, uh, Wonder Falls, Dead Like Me, but most importantly for American Gods, Hannibal. The first opening scene of American Gods, when you see this gloriously bloody scene, you're like, oh, so this is what Hannibal would have been like if it was on premium cable. This story, you don't get a ton from the first episode, but it's in the title, American Gods. It is about how gods of different kinds, you know, Gods that were from ancient religions, new gods um, that were created for this novel in the series, how they would interact on Earth today. And it is, it's it's beautiful. It is as beautiful as you would think Brian Fuller would make this series. I have absolutely no flipping clue what's going on. I have the book. I haven't read it. I wanted, I ordered it. I wanted to read through it before the series started, but it's a really thick book and I didn't have time. So I have absolutely no idea what's going on, but it is fascinating. Um, it stars a guy named Ricky Whittle, who I'm not familiar with. Uh, he's a British actor who's done some different things over there. He, I guess he was on, do you, do you watch the 100 gen? Uh, no, I do not. I get that confused with the 4400, which I did watch, but no, I don't watch the 100. Yeah, the 100 is a CW apocalyptic show. He's on that, but he was on 
He's done some other stuff uh, that I don't watch. The Mist- uh, Mistresses on ABC. I- I'm not familiar with that one. Uh, I mean, I know what it is, but um, but he's really great. It's got Emily Browning, Crispin Glover, Pablo Schreiber, Ian McShane, um, who's kind of I won't spoil it. But he's fantastic, but it also has people like Cloris Leachman in it, Jillian Anderson, Orlando Jones, Dane Cook, Kristen Chenoweth, Corbin Burnson. It's just got. A really cool cast doing all these crazy things, and it is absolutely beautiful. It's only eight episodes. It premieres on April 30th on Stars. Um, I highly recommend it. I've only seen the first episode, but it was enough to make me say, I have no idea what's going on, but I want to find out. Jen, I don't know. This doesn't normally fall into the categories of stuff that you and I would like because it is kind of a fantasy kind of thing. But I, but you loved Hannibal, right? Um. <laughs> I didn't really watch Hannibal. Oh, you didn't? I thought you were Hamil- uh, Hannibal. Hannibal. Well, Fanable. you're getting that. You're That's getting what that. It was. You're getting that confused. Hamilton. Hamilton. <laughs> yeah. Common Fam- Hamilton. Yeah. Yeah. Right. I mean, you know. I don't. I don't have anything against Hannibal. I, I watched a few episodes and really liked it. It's just one of those things I never got to. Yeah, I know how that is. We bemoan the fact that there's too much TV all the time. But this is one. It, it is really good. So if this sounds like something that would appeal to you, definitely check it out. It's only eight episodes, and I will be watching throughout the season's run. Liv, I need to get your thoughts. Don't know how this works yet? As a general rule, I require a dead body and a brain. I'm a zombie. Nature is a zombie. We're all on the same team. We eat brains, and we solve murders. I'm not so sure that this is the best time for me to be on Teenage Girl Brain. Suck it up, Lily White. I cannot stop taking selfies. I never would have expected I'd be surrounded by so many dead bodies. We're totally best friends, right? Oh, good God. I know what's happening right now with the brain, but it still freaks me out. Well, if anyone can get used to it, it's you. Look at us, all working together to solve mysteries. We should get a van and a dog. Okay, we're going to veer off of television and get into a different kind of medium that you and I both really like, Jen, and that is podcasting. The first real podcast that, in my opinion, kind of broke through from being a thing that either college kids or yuppies listened to to being a pop culture phenomenon was Serial. And this podcast is from the creators of Serial, as well as This American Life, which is kind of where Serial got its start from as well. This is called S-Town, and it's hosted by Brian Reed. And Jen, this is one that I've only I've only listened to the first two episodes, so I'm at a disadvantage because I know you listen to this in like this. What is it? Seven episodes? You listen to them in like what? Seven straight hours or something? That is correct. <laughs> you just binged it straight through. I sure did. I um at the end of the, at the end of the second episode, there is a a big cliffhanger, and I won't go any further into that. That uh, hooked me in. And I just couldn't stop. It, it, it was remarkable to me how attached I got to this person who I thought was insane. And then it took a turn and it became very emotional. And I was a fool, but it was wonderful. <laughs> well, if I didn't have a bunch of TV to watch to prepare for this episode, I would have done the same thing and kept listening straight through. The first episode of S-Time is so completely transfixing that you think it's setting you up for one thing. And about halfway through the second episode, you realize that's not what this is at all. You're not exactly sure what it is. And then, as you said, the big reveal at the end of episode two definitely sets it up for something that I don't know what it is because I haven't gotten through 
the rest of the series like you have. But Jen, go ahead and set up the premise for the whole series because um, this is that's it's not really a spoiler. That's what's out there. That's what everyone has known about S Town. So kind of tell us exactly where we start in episode one. Well, the premise and. This is just the premise. This is how it was marketed, is that there is this um, colorful gentleman in the South <laughs> who reaches out to this guy. Is his name Brian? Yes. Um, his name is uh, Brian Reed, and he's a producer with This American Life. He, um, This gentleman kept reaching out to Brian and saying that he had um, a murder for him to look into, serial-esque, and he thinks that there was a story there, and he really encouraged him to visit him and look into this investigation. That's how it's pitched. So Jen's hooked right away because, hi, true crime, you know, <laughs> huge fan. That is how it is sold. That is not what it is about. That's all I'm saying. Well, and, and what makes it so interesting is is that the person who sends these emails, his name is John. Um, he is in very rural Alabama. And, you know, Jen, you and I have both lived in small towns. You've lived in small towns kind of in the Northeast and Eastern Europe. Uh, I've lived in small towns in the Midwest and in the Great Plains and in the South as well. I feel like he's a guy who, at first blush, everybody knows. But then as you start to learn a little bit more about him, he defies all kinds of stereotypes while completely embodying others. He's not the guy you would think that lives in rural Alabama. But then again, he's exactly who you think would live in rural Alabama. And I think that's what makes him so fascinating is because you just want to know who this guy is. Is he completely batshit crazy? Is he a genius? Is he both? Is he sincere? Is he just having a goof? Is he a bullshit artist? Is he dangerous? I, I That's kind of what hooked me. In that first episode. And then, like you said, that's the pitch we get. And for the first episode plus, that's the story that's being told. And then it takes a very different turn about halfway through and then a gigantic turn at the end of episode two. But I was fascinated by this John character from the beginning. Yeah, kudos to Brian for seeing that there was a story there, even if it wasn't what he thought it was. And he pursued it. And not really a big surprise to NPR, but they, the way they unfold the story and storytelling in general, it's masterful because everyone has been involved in a conversation with someone who's like, oh my God, I have the best story for you. And two seconds in, you're like, oh dear God, get to the point. Storytelling is an art form. And this is a perfect example of that. Yeah. And one of the things you learn early on in this series is, is that this is not something that John sent Brian an email on Monday, and then John was following up and showing up in Alabama on Thursday. This is a, a relationship and a conversation that they had for well over a year, year and a half before Brian decided to really investigate it thoroughly. So kudos on the persistence to John to keep this story at the front of Brian's mind, but then also for Brian to kind of, you know, because I'm sure at NPR, you kind of get inundated with a lot of weird requests, but to be able to say that this one's not one to just automatically send into the junk folder. And I'm really, really excited to listen to the five episodes. We're recording on a Sunday evening. If I'm not done by Monday or Tuesday morning, I will be shocked because it is super, super interesting. Um, Jen, definitely more in your wheelhouse at first than, than mine uh, because of the true crime element and you listen to more nonfiction podcasts than I do. 
Um, but this one is unique because I listened for a while. I listened to a lot of fiction podcasts, uh, you know, things that were either contained stories into single episodes or even short seasons. And then also some long form podcasts as well that go on, you know, with no specific end date. And I kind of have gotten away from, I've gotten away from that. There's only really one of those that I still listen to because it just kind of got old and repetitive. However, this, which this podcast, which is nonfiction, it scratched all those itches because the characters were so unique and colorful and vibrant and specific where, and you know, you kind of get that in the fiction stuff, but then after a while, they're just all the same thing because it's audio and you can only tell so many different types of stories. But this scratched the itch that I think for me, I got from fiction podcasts and it sounds like for you that you get from nonfiction stuff. Yes, it is. And, and we talk about John because obviously he's the star of it, but it's also the people of this town, including family, including friends, including not friends. Um, it's just a, and a, it's a cast of characters that Noah Hawley couldn't write. You know, it's just <laughs> the realness of it makes it a fantastic story. So I am very much looking forward to your thoughts afterwards to see if you react as emotionally as I did. Probably not, but let's, you know, no. we'll see. Yeah, no, I don't have emotions. Um, I uh, I just have no heart, so I probably won't. But I'm I'm enthralled nonetheless. In fact, I've seen a lot of people online retweeting stuff from iTunes reviews of S Town, and they call it S Town, but that's actually what a, a, a contraction technically because. S is a word that NPR probably normally wouldn't use. But people, when they review it and stuff, they're like, oh, this is so obviously fake. That guy's just an actor. And so if that tells you that there are legitimately people who are believing that this is not real, that tells you how colorful these characters are. So I'm 100% in on S-Town, and I will be finishing it up probably before this episode of Something Like It Pop actually hits the airwaves. When an antique clock breaks, a clock that's been telling time for 200 or 300 years, Fixing it can be a real puzzle. An old clock like that was handmade by someone. It might take away the time with a pendulum, with a spring, with a pulley system. I'm told fixing an old clock can be maddening. You're constantly wondering if you've just spent hours going down a path that will likely take you nowhere. So at every moment along the way, you have to decide if you're wasting your time or not. Anyway, I only learned about all this because years ago, an antique clock restorer contacted me and asked me to help him solve a murder. Something's happened. Something has absolutely happened in this town. There's just too much little crap for something not to have happened. And I'm about had enough of shit town and the things that goes on. All right, Jen, so we're going to turn ourselves Back to April TV with some rapid-fire recommendations. There's just so much going on this month that we couldn't get it all in that first section. We've talked about The Leftovers, Fargo, iZombie. You talked about 13 Reasons Why and The Get Down. I talked about The Marvelous Mrs. Maisel and American Gods, but there is still a lot more that we want to get in. But we're going to keep it short. We're going to do it in two minutes, which is becoming 
my favorite segment because it's fun. I will, Jen, I promise I will try to keep it short this time. I suck at that generally. But how this will work is we will start a clock for two minutes and we'll try to get in as many recommendations as possible. When the two minutes is up, whoever is speaking can finish um, and then we'll move on. But if you want to take down these recommendations, get a pen and paper because they will be coming at you hot and heavy. Jen, I'm going to go ahead and start the clock here in a second so you can start with your first recommendation first the time begins now um hbo's comedy darlings come back veep 416 silicon valley 423 two of the best comedies on television can't say enough good things about them go the first thing that i'm gonna recommend is on hulu it is the apocalyptic all too close TV show The Handmaid's Tale. It stars Elizabeth Moss, Yvonne Strahovski, Anne Dowd, and a bunch of other people. It premieres the first three episodes on April 26th. It's terrifying, but necessary. Go. Uh, preparing this week, Better Call Saul and Angie Tribeca, both entering into their third season, I believe. Um, both wonderful, and you should catch up on Better Call Saul if, if you haven't already. Go. The next one that I'm going to recommend is on NBC. It premieres on April 25th. It's a new comedy called Great News. It stars Brigga Heelan along with Andrea Martin, John Michael Higgins, Nicole Richie, and Horatio Sands. It's basically a television news producer whose mother gets an internship there. Not as good as some of the other recent NBC comedies, but still enjoyable. Go ahead, Jen. Twin Peaks, the uh, 25-year... Um, sequel comes out in May. Now's a perfect time to binge the original original series available on Netflix. Go. <laughs> Another show that just recently premiered on April 5th is on IFC called Brockmire. It stars Hank Azaria and Amanda Peet. Hank Azaria's character is a play-by-play baseball announcer who had a very embarrassing on-air explosion a decade ago and he's coming back to the United States to try to reclaim his past glory. It is perverse and hysterical. Go, Jen. Grace and Frankie already airing on Netflix. It's in its third season. Lily Tomlin and Jane Fonda. It's so nice to see um, these uh, rich roles for people in their 70s, also including Martin Sheen and Sam Waterston, who are adorable as a gay couple. Go. With with two seconds left, the tenth season slash series of the new... Doctor Who premieres on April 15th. They have all new uh, companions, including the first openly gay companion in Doctor Who history. All right. So that wasn't bad, Jen. Have you heard? Have you? I think Brockmire would be right up your alley. Yeah. Um, I heard it from Ralph, who I saw last night, my oh, hero. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, right. He talked about it on Kevin and Bean because Hank, Hank Azaria came on for an interview. And from that. I had never heard of it, but you're right. It's definitely up my alley. Yeah, it's not as, you know, when I first heard the pitch, I thought it was going to be like super, super perverse. And, you know, it's based on a Funny or Die web series that Hank Azaria appeared in. But it is much more than that now. It is very fun, very deep, great characters, but also still hysterical. Uh, Unfortunately for you, Jen, there is a cameo, not in the first two episodes that have aired, but apparently there will be a cameo. By your favorite, Joe Buck. Oh, good. Maybe he can eat a bag of dicks. <laughs> I was not, <laughs> I was not expecting that. <laughs> Baseball broadcasters are a family. Really, brothers of the booth who would do anything for one another. I can honestly say that I love each and every one of those guys. Except Joe Buck. 
Jim Brockmeyer is one of the biggest assholes I've ever met. Hope the next time I see that guy is at his funeral so I can teabag his corpse. He's a steaming pile of shit. Yeah, Joe Buck and I, what are we like? We're like the, uh, the Biggie and Tupac of the baseball world. He's Biggie, because they both love a Kangol hat. I'm Tupac because, well, I'm a bundle of contradictions, and uh, I also went to a magnet arts high school. He's a total dick. All right, Jen, now we're going to close the show per the use with Show and Tell, where we auditorily show everybody something and then tell them why it is important. Jen, why don't you go ahead and start us off with your Show and Tell? Well, I feel like my show and tells should just be uh, sponsored by one guy because I really just talk about him too much. But <laughs> brought to you by James Corden, my show and tell is something he did a few weeks ago on his show. And he basically took a couple members of the cast of the movie Beauty and the Beast, as well as some of his staff, and decided to reenact the musical numbers in the middle of one of Los Angeles's busiest intersections. So what they would do is... The lights would turn red. They would run out in full costume with Josh Gad and the guy who played Gaston. What's his name? Uh, I believe that was Luke Evans. Yes. And they would run out into the crosswalk and start performing these musical numbers. And when the light turned green, James would just yell, go. And they would run as fast as they could because guess what? The drivers really don't care. Um, <laughs> it was – I laughed way too hard at it. But he's just so good and he thinks of these crazy stunts and people just do them inexplicably. And he's just delightful to watch. So I highly recommend it on YouTube. It is uh, wonderful. So here is James Corden and the cast of Beauty and the Beast taking their lives in their hands in Los Angeles. Gather round. Gather round. You're probably wondering why I'm holding this rose. The reason I'm holding this rose is the production we will be performing is a tale as old as time. Beauty and the Beast! (laughs) Joining the cast for this production of Beauty and the Beast here from the live action motion picture Beauty and the Beast Luke Evans, Dan Stevens and Josh Gad It's a town It's a quiet village Every day Like the one before Little town Full of little people Waking up That is absolutely hysterical. Are you familiar with the other crosswalk musicals he's done before? No, this is the first time I've ever seen it. He's done Grease. He's done um, uh, Lion King. I want to say Lion King was with Rose Byrne and Seth Rogen. Very funny. He's done Grease. Maybe did Phantom as well. Um, Definitely check all of those out because it is a great, great segment. Okay, for my show and tell, I'm going to (laughs) dive into one of the coolest events in New York City every year, and that is MCC Theater's Miscast, where they take iconic Broadway numbers and some of Broadway's biggest stars perform them, 
but it's not the people who would ever actually be able to play them on stage. It's usually gender flipped or age flipped or ethnicity flipped. And there's a ton of really good ones. Jen, I've sent you some of them before. But the one that was by far the best is one of my favorite Broadway performers, Norbert Leo Butts, backed up by pretty much everybody else who performed that night. And he performed a little song called And I Am Telling You I'm Not Going. He performed the, kind of the opening scene and the song that leads up to it with the help of people like Stephanie J. Block, um, Brian Darcy James, Brandon Victor Dixon, uh, Jen Colella, uh, Jordan Fisher, Mandy Gonzalez, Ben Platt, Carmen Cusack, and then he got into the song that we all know and love by himself. And to top it off, Jennifer Holliday, the original Effie from Dreamgirls, was one of the other performers, and she was on stage just watching this all unfold. Um, it was pure magic. Uh, Norbert Leo Butts is uh, incredible in anything. He's been doing way more TV lately than theater, but I really, really hope he comes back to Broadway soon. So here's Norbert Leo Butts in a cast of Broadway stars performing from Dreamgirls. Thanks for listening to this episode of Broadway World Something Like a Pop Podcast. You can find all of our episodes on broadwayworld.com and you can get new episodes on iTunes, Stitcher, or Google Play. So make sure to subscribe, download, and share the gift that is Something Like a Pop. Also, do our egos a favor and follow the show on Twitter at SLIP Podcast and go over to iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts in, rate and review us, please and thank you. We invite you to get in touch with Jen and me and let us know your thoughts on the shows, movies, podcasts, and topics that we discuss every week. Check back on our feed next Saturday where we will have the third episode of Making a Musical Invisible the Musical where Jen will be interviewing some of the principals from last fall's reading of the show. So, until next time, we'll see you around the Broadway world. Time time we've had so much to share. TV creators working today, so I, I'm sure that whatever little bit in my Siri just banged. Did you hear that? I did. <laughs> Shut up, Siri. Wow, what a bitch. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, she, seriously. Oh, well, I'm living without No, I'm not living without Because the first episode of S-Town was so completely... That's how exciting we are. I'm not walking out. Stop all the rivers, push, strike, and kill. Maybe Chris Pratt and, and Jennifer Lawrence? Oh, no, no, no. I was completely and utterly wrong on that. Tell me.